The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by Yoram Hazoni, who is the author of a new book called Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Yoram, I think we'll, we'll get onto the book directly in a moment. But as I was reading it, Britain was in uh, 10 days of official mourning and we had the funeral of the Queen and it struck me that a lot of the themes in your book were sort of applicable to this moment in British history. I wondered, did you watch it and did you think about the nature of conservatism in relation to the monarchy in Britain? I certainly did. I feel um, a little bit out of my depth uh, trying to explain traditional monarchy to, to, to a British audience. But the the book, in fact, is all about the problem of what politics looks like when you frame it so that it's all about freedom and nothing is about tradition, the way that you honor traditions, duties to traditions, the, 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 the mutual loyalty among peoples that pass down traditions and, and the, you know, the astonishing feeling of unity and identification, a fellow feeling that people feel when, when they're part of something like that. And this amazing outpouring of love and grief and mutual affinity for the crown in the UK and in, in fact in other Commonwealth countries as well, I, I think it's a, a glaring, astonishing reminder of the fact that human beings are not made only of a desire for freedom, but also of a, a, a sense of obligation and participation. Yes, and a desire to be part of a nation, which is another one of your big themes. Your your last book, which was very successful, The Virtue of Nationalism, talks a lot about this. The, the desire to be part of a nation is very important to people, and it goes beyond, as you say, just the regulation of freedom. Yes, yeah, so the, the, this is a major issue, both in politics, in public life, in culture, and also at a personal level, is, is that all of us have grown up for quite some time uh, at, at least many decades and possibly longer, being educated in in a worldview that says that that what the human being fundamentally is, if you look at him or her f- through a political lens, the human being is fundamentally about n- natural liberties and the the natural equality among human beings. Now these things can be very important, but what's odd is that when we're we're taught politics or civics. You know, whether it's at the grade school level or at the university level, even at the doctoral level, there's no discussion about the fact that human beings are born into families and tribes and nations, and that our loyalties and affinities and and feeling of homecoming and belonging are all developed within those unchosen communities. Now, it's obviously true that you know some people become adults and they they cut off their ties with their family or they move to a different nation. But wherever they go, they once again reestablish these kinds of family, tribe, and national loyalties. They, they grow back very quickly. 
and that's such, such a crucial part of of what it what it means to be a human being and uh, what it what it means is that nations are are not only natural but they are are a necessary part of us that you know each nation is different from the others each is kind of an experiment in what it means to be to be human but the the attempt especially in recent recent decades to try to raise human beings that do not have those kinds of family and national loyalties i think has uh, not worked at all i think we're still where we were yes well, you start the book by talking about Anglo-conservatism and the way in which Britain or England was very important in forming the conservative worldview. You talk about John Fortescue and you talk about John Selden. Could you tell us a little bit about those figures and why they are so vital in understanding what conservatism is? Sure. When we go to school, we're usually told the story about modernity and democracy and science, everything is told as though it all began somewhere around the year 1700. And everything before then is assumed or sometimes even explicitly said to have been kind of the dark ages, uh, a benighted past. Now, what, what's interesting ab about these claims is that they completely ignore the fact that the most famous and developed nation in Europe and in, indeed in, in the world is England or Britain later. And that for, for centuries before the rationalist enlightenment, the, the, uh, the English had already been developing a common law and a traditional constitution, which has most of the, uh, most of the features that were told were invented in the 1700s. So Fortescue is interesting. He was the, the, the most important common lawyer uh, in the period of the Wars of the Roses before the Tudors. And he wrote a book in 1470 called In Praise of the Laws of England. And when you open this book, first of all, it, there's a new edition out. It's very easy to read. They've modernized the spelling uh, and it's short. And when you start reading it, you, you discover that there in 1470, 300 years before Montesquieu and the American Revolution, Sir John Fortescue is telling us all about the greatness of the English Constitution because it has the separation of powers the bicameral legislature, the assignment of taxation and legislation to the people through the legislature, the executive veto, the the, the jury trial, uh, the ban on torture. I mean, you, you can simply go on and on. And here's a document from what everybody agrees is the Middle Ages. And still you read it and much of the book feels as though you're, you're in a modern civics, civics class. There are many other important people in that common law tradition, but if we'll just focus for a second on Fortescue and the, the centuries that followed, the fact that what we today consider to be the great achievements of enlightenment, uh, many or most of them already appear as part of the English national tradition. And by, by the way, Fortescue, like the others in this tradition, conceive of this tradition as actually being founded on the Bible. So that you have this picture of, of someone centuries before, let's say, John Locke, who is describing a, what he considers a biblical inheritance, which in fact gives us much of what we consider to be modern political thought. And that, I, I think that, that that has to contribute something to uh, our trying to understand what's happening to us today when all the, you know, all the, the traditions are being rapidly overthrown. You find very few people are willing to explicitly defend tradition. And yet the English tradition is 
by most lights, such, such a glorious and splendid thing so many centuries before reason supposedly invented all of these things. You go on to talk about America and the the role of conservatism, conservative thinking in the formation of America. I wonder, a couple of thoughts sprung while reading that part of your book. Protestantism is obviously very central to the English understanding of liberty, as it is in America. You are you're Jewish. Do you regard Protestantism specifically, not just Christianity, as central to what you regard as conservative, the force of conservatism, the power of conservatism? Well, let, let me dodge that question just, just a little okay. bit. I think, I think that as you read in Fortescue and in other common law thinkers, the English and later the American tradition of individual rights and, and, and liberties is something that is described as coming from, as I said, as, as coming from the Bible particularly the Old Testament, because many of these thinkers treat the New Testament as uh, what, what you need to know for a future life, and the Old Testament is the basis for, for political life. And when you look at things from that perspective, when you look at history through that lens, what you see is that many Christian peoples through, through, through the, you know, the 2,000 years of Christendom at different times pick up and adopt parts of this biblical inheritance. So it's absolutely true that, you know, probably the the best known and the most far-reaching such biblicization of the polity is is with the Protestant Reformation. That's absolutely true, that Anglicans and Presbyterians, in, in general, the Reform and Calvinists, that all of them see their own nations uh, you know wh- whether it's England or Scotland, Dutch or, or or the Swiss, all of them see their own nations as being kind of a modern instantiation of ancient Israel from the Bible, and all of them think of things of values like the value of national independence through the lens of the Bible, because the the Greek and Roman inheritance doesn't doesn't have a concept of national borders and national independence. So this is absolutely true that the most dramatic eruption of this kind of biblical freedom, we could call it biblical conception of freedom, is certainly through Protestantism. But at the same time, you know, since, since my, my book came out, I, I, I've uh, had to learn a great deal about Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity from various readers who read the book and said, look, let me, let, let me tell you about the history of the Polish nation or the Hungarian nation. Or, or the French, by by the way, the French also have a a concept of uh, Gallicanism, which led to thinking about France as descended from ancient Israel and is independent politically from the world empire that you know that uh, the Holy Roman Empire aspired to be. So all of these other Catholic nations, their biblicism is much less known, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. If you talk to a Polish Catholic nationalist about his or her history, they'll start to tell you, look, the, the we, we Poles w- were independent for a thousand years. And the idea of the, the Holy Roman Empire and the universal church imposing its bishops on us, well, that was a German idea. <laughs> the, and, and, and we Poles were always nationalists. Yes. I'm not an ex- expert in this history, but I would say that you're certainly right that uh, the modern world has been deeply affected by Protestantism, but there are sympathizers among the Catholics as well, and they have a story to tell that's interesting. 
Well, I also wanted uh, about the formation of America and America as a nation state. The way you describe it is often as the the founding fathers, there was a tension between liberalism and conservatism and understanding the ways in which they wanted to imitate the British constitutions and uh, the constitution and the way, ways in which they didn't. Is that still fundamentally what defines conservatism is, is its relationship to liberalism or vice versa, perhaps? Well, I, I don't think conservatism was always defined against liberalism. Let, let me just very quickly define what the, these terms. If you think a political worldview should fundamentally be based on individual liberties and freedoms and equality, then you're a liberal. And if you think that a political worldview begins with the tribe, the nation, with these large loyalty groups, and the question of how do you how do you preserve them and conserve them and repair them and restore them so that they can propagate through the centuries and 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 even longer. If you if you think in those terms, you know, you may love individual liberty, but your thinking is fundamentally conservative. Now this conservative tradition in England is much older than the liberal tradition. The the, the liberal tradition we can say roughly that it, it begins with the importation of the ideas of ferocious from the Netherlands into England. Figures like like Hobbes and Locke are, are, are the important progenitors of the liberal framework in England. But they're arguing with an existing common law tradition, an existing conservative tradition, which is nationalist, religious, biblicist, and also has concern for for the constitution and maintaining the checks and balances among the different branches of government and the sanctity of private property and its relation to freedom so what's happening is that by the time that liberalism appears in in England in in the the 1600s there are already all of these fundamental ideas that are part of the conservative tradition going back many centuries now in America People reasonably think, well, America had a revolution. It must have overthrown its uh, its traditions. And there are, in fact, plenty of people in the United States who talk like that today. I think the reality is a little bit different. As I write in the book, th- there certainly was a, a great deal of talk of not needing English tradition d- during the time of the revolution. Famous statesmen thinkers like Thomas Jefferson and Tom Paine certainly advocated that that kind of view, that reason alone is sufficient. We don't need the English traditions. We can simply invent out of our heads the right form of government. But that was not the majority of the political leadership. That view was was dominant for a few years beginning in 1776. But very quickly, George Washington, the commander of the colonial army, the commander of the new American army, uh, Washington and his officers and uh, other sympathizers of their cause very quickly began to understand that the the new government based entirely on reason on reason that the, the first american constitution of 1777 is called the articles of the confederation and that's famous disaster this is a a constitution that was based on reason it had nothing to do with the english tradition and it was a complete failure the the rebel armies were unable to to raise the the soldiers that they needed, they were un, unable to get receive uh, the funding that they needed in order to be, to be, to be able to fight. And people don't know that that at, at Yorktown the Americans see this as the, the great final victory over Britain. But the truth of the matter is that at Yorktown, that Washington's Washington's troops were moved there by 
private donations by private concerned private citizens because the the government was essentially non-existent and through through all of this hardship and and this this includes the the subsequent peace negotiations with Britain where the Americans were unable to impose the the settlement that they'd agreed to with Britain on the 13 states through all of this the greatest american statesmen beginning with washington were circulating letters and proposals for what was effectively a restoration of the english constitution mm. now the 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 americans of course they never had they never had a king or a an aristocracy the king didn't come and visit america so it's not really surprising that they 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 didn't adopt the king and the aristocracy but all of the other things that we've mentioned virtually you know almost the entire framework of the constitution of 1787 is an imitation of the english con- it's not an imitation it's i mean it was their the american inheritance I mean, they had 150 years of, of state constitutions based on the English model. The common law was studied as the law by all American jurists. And 1787, that constitution, far from being you know, a whole cloth invention of reason, it's a, a restoration of the English inheritance. And all of the members of Washington's party knew that and said so. Well, reading your book, I wonder whether a lot of currents in conservative thought now are anti the power of the executive, and certainly against the imperial presidency and so on. Would you argue that actually having a, an you do argue, in fact, that having an extremely powerful executive is, was what the conservatives, what the federalists at any rate wanted when they formed America. And that's very central to the idea of America is a very powerful executive force. Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, the the criticism of the American Constitution by Jefferson and, and and his party was that it was effectively an elected monarchy because the powers of the president, as as conceived in the Constitution, were even greater than those of of the English king. At, at this point, things are more complicated because none of the founders in the United States, the authors of the Constitution, imagined a situation in which you know millions, literally millions, of bureaucrats are empowered to make law. And neither the president nor the legislature is is actually able to shape the law because because the bureaucrats make the law, you know, on the basis of ideas that are handed to them from the universities. So I actually think that at the moment, the American Constitution consists of a weak president, a weak Congress, and stunningly strong administrative state and Supreme Court. So this wasn't exactly what they had in mind, but yes, the original conception was that a president had to, had to have very strong powers in order to be able to to, to defend the country, to raise taxes, uh, and also to establish a, a fundamental uh, unity and morality among the people. The president was considered to be essential for that. Let's jump forward a few centuries to conservatism now. And I think the reason you say the reason, one of the reasons you wrote this book is to debunk this mischaracterization of conservatism that's crept up in the last few decades, which you see as fusionism between libertarianism, I suppose, or liberalism and conservatism. And you think that that has led to a large misunderstanding of what the political right has really always been about. Is that a fair summary of what you what you are saying? Yes, I, I think that's fair. I, I, the, the, the term fusionism is from the 1960s, and it describes both in America and, and in Britain, it describes a kind of politics that that eventually came to be called conservatism, but it was really an alliance between 
conservatives who are traditionalists concerned with the propagation of the, the nation through time and liberals who think that that kind of stuff is dangerous and sounds authoritarian and really we should just focus on giving more and more liberties to the people. Those two groups, the libertarians and the conservatives, joined forces for a very good cause. They felt correctly that, that the West was, was losing the battle against communism abroad and against socialism, meaning planned economy at home. And, and so the alliance, I, I think, made very good sense. It was very successful in the sense that it eventually, you know, in the age of uh, Reagan and, and, and Thatcher, did in fact defeat the Soviet Union and, and did roll back socialism for a generation. But by the time that, that Mrs. Thatcher leaves the, you know, the scene in 1990, Ray, Reagan just prior to that, by that point, there isn't much left of the alliance because uh, li libertarianism was almost all that remained. Meaning, you know, I mean, we all know this, that for the last, last 20 or 30 years, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, let's say, the word conservatism has basically meant liberalism. It has meant, meant what problems do we have? Well, let's, let's lower taxes, create a, a worldwide economy with no barriers, and strive for ever greater individual liberties, liberties for private corporations and liberties for individuals in their private lives. And some of that has certainly been to the good. But to say that a conservative is someone who, who thinks that, that the preservation of the nation depends exclusively on individual liberties is, I, I think, a, a, a piece of astonishing historical ignorance. And it's damaging because the UK... I assume needs a liberal party, but it also needs a conservative party, by which I mean not a party that's that's only called conservative, but a party whose concerns are for the unity of the nation, for the preservation of the nation, for its unique in interests, for its independence, for its uh, religious traditions and, and its constitutional traditions. Well, yes, there's some concern about that today with trussonomics and Liz Truss's ec economic ideas. But I wondered, I was struck in what, the chapter about Thatcher and Reagan in your book by the emphasis you put on Reagan's religious side and the fact that he thought religion was central to politics. And I suppose your critique of fusionism is that it is free market capitalism without the moderating force of religion. Is, is that right? Yeah. Yes. If I might, if I could quote Irving Kristol, who was uh, probably the most influential political thinker during the, the Reagan years, he famously wrote that uh, conservatism, that modern conservatism rests on three pillars, religion, nationalism, and economic growth, of, of which he said that religion is the most important. He, wrote, he also wrote a book called Two Cheers for Capitalism. And his, his basic conception was that the free market is the best known eng engine for the creation of wealth. And so, so it is important and in many respects right to support a free market. The problem is that the constant talk about consent and contracts and individual freedoms without reference to religion or to the nation, to, to religion or nationalism, acts as a solvent which ends up destroying all unchosen communities. It destroys the family, meaning, you know, I'm born into my family, but I don't choose which family. I don't consent to be a member of the family. I'm just born into it. And the same is true for the nation and, and, and for other such communities. And what Crystal, speaking for 
I think for the, the, the Reagan era in general, they, they understood the free market to be crucial, but only if it's kept in bounds by the demands of Christianity, of biblical religion, and of national independence and national tradition, only with those guardrails is it possible for the free market to uh, to exist without ending up destroying everything around it. Well, Yoram, sadly, uh, we're running out of time, but I would like to ask you one more question, which is about the end of your book, you talk about the importance of character, individual character, in fact, uh, possibly against individualism, and the family uh, being central to a conservative worldview. Is, is this something, do you, you think, that will become successful in the future of the conservative movement? You're, you're involved in the, the nationalist conservative movement. Do you think that uh, individual character and uh, protection of the family or, or support for the family are going to be the defining features of the right in the future? Yes, I think it's already happening. I mean, both the Trump movement and, and Brexit whatever whatever you may think of them both of them reflect a an intense desire to reestablish the uh, the common and the communal and the national aspect of our lives together and uh, the the family is the strong family is the, the the most basic building block of the strong nation and at this point you know after 2020 we've what we've been calling liberalism has collapsed as the you know as the hegemonic idea that used to govern America and Britain and and Europe. Twenty twenty was it was a year where where formerly liberal institutions started in the name of uh, woke wokeness woke neo Marxism began firing employees who 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 held to the uh, to the old the old liberal ideas. So we're we're kind of in a new world, and what what I'm seeing almost everywhere is people who see see this crazy new ideology coming and they see the damage that it's doing on so many fronts and they're asking what did we do to bring this about the central pillar as as Irving Kristol and many others said in the 1980s the central pillar against insane ideas is the strong family unit the intact family unit and its capacity to to teach to hand down uh, traditional ideas and to teach resistance against tyrannical ideas. Just about everywhere I look, I see people re- seeing the Marxism coming and saying, we have to restore the family and the nation. Yoram, I wish we could have spoken for longer. Uh, congratulations on your book. It's very, very interesting. And I recommend all Americano listeners buy it and read it. And um, I do hope we'll get you on again. Thank you for having me. I, this was wonderful. God bless you.